Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are talking about the vampire film for your Halloween season pleasure and edification. Uh, Dolores recently taught a course on the vampire film, which we're going to use as a as a source for our discussion. Of course, we can't cover everything she covered, but we're going to um, deal with some of the some of the you know the foundational ideas and some of the best ideas. And there's lots of good ones. Um, so there's so much to say. Let's just get started. Uh, first, I you know I I'm gonna pose a long question. <laughs> Let's talk about the cinema in relation to the figure of the vampire. Um, and the vampire, of course, is a, has its roots as a folkloric figure found in a number of cultures. Though in America, we're, we're most familiar with Eastern European antecedents of the monster just because movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so even so, there's a, 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 there's a good deal in the, your, in the scholarship in general about the way cinema itself functions in a kind of vampiric way. There's even a larger category of, of how cinema um, is, you know, related and ideally suited to representations of the fantastical, the horrific, etc. So this mm-hmm. is a subheading of that. As you as you put it in your syllabus, when you identify, quote, cinema's essentially essentially vampiric function, the ability of the undead machine to raise the once living world. So that's mm-hmm. a, a, a sort of half sentence I pulled. Um, could you explain just a bit further what what you meant by that? Yeah, um, many scholars, especially of early film, see film as one uh, visual technology in a long line of 19th century visual technologies Mm -hmm. that are sort of put in the service of a bourgeois fantasy of uh, not only a perfect recreation of the world uh, so that one can like master and control it, but also as uh, a technology that in some way fulfills the fantasy of living forever and promises to conquer the fear of death, which we might say is the (laughs) primary fear of the bourgeoisie um, (laughs) in the 19th century and today. Um, And of course, on the literal level, it means because film can capture the appearance of reality uh, and can uh, revive it. (laughs) Uh, You know, we know that long after people are dead, we can still see them looking young on film and behaving in a lifelike way. Mm -hmm. And there's something distinctly uncanny about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, several early vampire films exploit this uncanny nature. And even before feature films, many early 19th century, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century um, motion picture technologies often uh, also showcase the uncanny qualities of of motion pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like a sort of penny arcade feel and you'd come see um, they might play. Uh, something backwards, you know, so it Mm. appears as if someone is rising from the dead or flying or whatever. Um, And I think that one of the early vampire films that exploits this most beautifully is Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire from 1932. Highly recommend it. Um, It was on the Criterion channel uh, last year. I'm not sure if it's still up there, but you can get it on Amazon easily to rent. Um, It's very beautiful um it's about i mean it's a it's a very standard sort of like gothic tale where a young man comes to a creepy country house um and there is uh there's a young woman who's suffering from being tortured and lured by a vampire in this case the vampire actually turns out to be an ancient woman which is kind of unusual Mm -hmm. um 
but it uh, the film itself uh, has very memorable sequences with uh, rewinding time, mm-hmm. and the time is very much out of joint and dreamlike and surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the presence of the vampire makes the people in the home who are subject to the vampire's pull. replay their lives and encounters in odd ways (laughs) that Mm -hmm. only cinema can allow like the the process of you know fast uh, of uh rewind and also Mm -hmm. fast forward and um watch for this incredibly memorable sequence of the young man hallucinating his own demise and being entrapped within a coffin Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's a subjective coffin there's a subjective a series of shots of his point of view from the coffin which is one of the most terrifying and beautiful things i've ever Mm -hmm. seen on film um so that's uh those are some of the ways that oh uh, well let's just explain too it's a very screen shaped rectangle like window built into the lid of the coffin yes <laughs> and there he is in his throat he's still conscious but is in his you know death-like paralyzed state looking up and the old woman vampire looks down on him yes and it's so terrifying and you'll often see that used as the image to advertise the film and i think it is on criterion collection criterion collection uh, i mean sorry channel has a whole long series of vampire films for for um halloween so you should really check them out but carry on yeah gorgeous. for sure yeah, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, um, yeah, we we you know we talked a lot about the ways that film can bring back the dead just by mm. its you know its very technology. Um, this did lead us to uh, Nosferatu as mm-hmm. well. And Eileen, I know you've seen uh, Sh- Shadow of the Vampire mm-hmm. in the Shadow of the Vampire, right? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Let me just quickly mention it, this is a this is a film that tries to make a different kind of claim about how fil- filmmaking is vampiric. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's a 2000 film that came out. It stars John Malkovich as the, as the great director FW Murnau. And he's making Nosferatu, but the whole conceit, black comic, a lot of it conceit is that um, the act famous actor, Max Shrek, who's really known for playing count Orlock uh, in uh, the, the, the Dracula figure in um, Nosferatu um, is actually a vampire that he hires a literal <laughs> So the whole the whole rest of the shoot, of course, is a nightmare as the vampire is he's trying to restrain the vampire from feasting on the on the cast and crew. And but as it goes on longer and longer, because he's you know, Murnau is so invested in getting all the juice out of the situation, so to speak, and out of the filmmaking process itself and getting the best film, um, he starts sort of enabling Orlock, letting him do it. Um, in order to get a great film. So the director himself in the filmmaking function becomes a vampiric figure, which, you know, isn't a huge stretch. You know, the right. artist is vampire, <laughs> ain't, a, ain't a big leap, yep. but it's an entertaining film for just taking that conceit and, and running with it. Um, but certainly you can look at Nosferatu in exactly the same terms you just laid out for Vampire. And I love Vampire. I just had forgotten it. I haven't seen it in many, many years. and I need to rewatch it. Yeah. I, I found it stunning. For the, it's now very acclaimed, by the way. It was initially the the reception was people just thought it was the weakest film Dreyer had done. Yes, exactly. Um, because they just couldn't get into the the dreamlike quality of it, and the, you often don't know what level of reality you're at. Right? <laughs> you know, you're, you, you are you in a hallucination? Is he actually dead? Is he dreaming? Is he what? Um, so you have to just go into these layers and layers of uh, what level of consciousness am I at? What level of reality? So Nosferatu also does a ton of stuff, um, probably more famously, um, that makes the that kind of um, kind of cinema as vampiric function um, 
kind of uh, takes that idea and runs with it. So there's yeah. so many things that we perceive of when we're when we're first introduced to Count Orlac in the world of the vampire. It's often in very extreme um, film terms. So like there's the probably the most dramatic is when the whole image goes to negative. So you're seeing a negative image where the you know mm -hmm. the sky is black and the trees are white and all that jazz as as the count is driving his uh, his little nightmare chariot <laughs> yes. um and he drives it in fast motion and you know there's there's again a whole series of ways that the, the, the very use of the of the of the of the cinematic cinematic apparatus is aligned with vampirism absolutely and and just to like perhaps belabor the point oh let's that, belabor that let's belabor it. It. <laughs> right. um, you know it's not only that the vampires are the the undead like films are but they also um obviously vampires never age mm -hmm. so there's a way that you know vampires uh defy conventional understandings of time um as it relates to like a human a normal human organism <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. In the same way that film does, of course. And what I love about Nosferatu, um, for so many reasons, there's uh, the idea in Shadow of the Vampire and sort of Nosferatu is that death is um, embodied by overexposure. <laughs> mm -hmm. So at the end in Nosferatu, when the sun comes up mm -hmm. and the count is dis you know uh, disintegrated, um, that's also how the vampire dies in Shadow of the Vampire, which is about mm -hmm. filming uh, what if the vampire were real uh, mm -hmm. in Nosferatu. Um, but there's something about like the lack of image is death, which is mm -hmm. really interesting. Like, you know, you can live forever as long as you're legible. <laughs> so, um, and we should also shout out to, so the film Shadow of the Vampire, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you said John Malkovich plays... Um, Murnau. Murnau. Oh, and Willem uh, Dafoe, sorry. Yes, right. He's Dafoe plays... He's Shrek, rather. He's amazing. Yeah, Willem he's Dafoe great. is so good. I yes. personally hate John Malkovich, but like always and forever and everything i think he's such a big creep but he totally works as the vampiric director who's willing to risk everyone's lives for his egomaniacal project <laughs> i am i'm with you i only love him when he's a creep yeah <laughs> so i love him in burn after reading when he's this egotistical spy who gets fired anyway that's a whole other story but he's also a delightful creep so he's totally. wonderful at playing a creep <laughs> totally totally and, and the most fun thing about taking a closer look at nosferatu in the classroom um in general the students liked it um mm. But I love I love vampire films also in general for their like depiction of the ambiguity of desire. And it mm. works really well in Nosferatu because the monster is not sexy. They yes. made him really ugly. Mm. <laughs> but this the young woman, Ellen, who plays, um, you know, uh, what the sort of not Lucy, uh, the Mina-esque character. Yeah, Mina. Or, is it Mina or Nina? I guess it's Mina. It's Mina. Mina. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Ellen slash Mina mm -hmm. character is still drawn to him. Yeah. And I love, we got obsessed or I kind of got obsessed with the function of lamps in these films. Mm -hmm. I won't go on a too, too big of a detour, but we looked at the final sequence where Ellen is drawn by the count and he's mm -hmm. moved next door and he's leering at her from a window and she's taken to her bed because she's fighting off his like demonic pull. Mm -hmm. And her, she's got this fiance and he's this like bourgeois realtor. Um, he's, he's sitting there in her bedroom by this stupid domestic looking lamp. And he lo just looks like the most boring motherfucker you've <laughs> ever seen. And then she's, you know, uh, 
cut to um, her side of the room, which is in darkness, and mm. the shadow of the Count is, like, luring her. And you're like, I get it. Like, she knows exactly what life is going to be like with this really boring realtor. <laughs> Why not? Mm-hmm. To be lured into darkness by the count. It's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to her. Right. And mind you, you at the literal, most literal level, if you watch it, you, she, they're supposed to be totally in love, like a totally devoted couple. But exactly. They make the, but there's this other level, which there always is, I think, almost in almost every vampire film I can think of. Yes. Or even if they're rep- representing it as the dreaded monster figure. It's always the monster you want to go to. I mean, really, that's what one of the distinguishing qualities of the vampire, right? Is yes. the erotic pole. You don't get ever say the erotic pole of Frankenstein's monster. You know, <laughs> it's just not a, not the thing that it is for for vampires always. So even when he looks deliberate, he's designed to look like a rat faced little. Is it is he even a human? You know, he's he's so shocking looking that. You know, the mysteries of Max Shrek's performance have been analyzed to death. Like, he doesn't even seem proportionally right. You know? Yes, <laughs> yes. There's a, a, a real deep level of horror just built into this crazy appearance and the two little weird pointy front teeth. And ah! So, yeah, so it's even more devastating to have her seem to be lured by such a creature who has none of the suave, you know, Eastern European aristocrat in cool clothes kind of thing going like Bella Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Is going to bring famously to his role, and you know he was getting women propositioning him <laughs> in every form possible from the time that he makes the stage hit of the Bram of Bram Stoker's Dracula, yep. um, until he makes the movie. I mean, he's, that's what he's famous for in part because he created such an absolute phenomena among people who were just erotically fixated on um, his portrayal of Dracula. Yep. So yeah, and when when you know you get the uh, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the famous famous director Herzog's. Um, adaptation of Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Um, you get he even beefs up even a little more the erotic, this the sort of the sort of creepy eroticism of the the vampire character. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. And this, I love the um, just the sort of like admitting the push pull. Uh, it's not a, a especially in Nosferatu, which could so easily be like. Uh, you know, we're just supposed to be straightforwardly scared. There's never anything straightforward about the vampire. It's always mm-hmm. like an expression of people caught in some kind of like conundrum <laughs> um, about their feelings toward it. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, big vote, big thumbs up for Nosferatu. Yes. yes. Um, maybe a way to transition into talking mm-hmm. about our most famous vampire, mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi in mm-hmm. Todd Browning's Dracula is to note that Carl Dreyer actually saw the Bela Lugosi Hollywood version of Dracula in 1931 Mm -hmm. and thought, God, I could make a vampire film better than this and decided to make Vampire (laughs) the year later. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And it's funny, like Bela Lugosi's Dracula gets a lot of shit from people (laughs) about being ham fisted and Mm -hmm. static. And Mm -hmm. I love it for those qualities. I love there's something it is very static. There's almost no non-diegetic score except at the opening and at the ending Mm -hmm. they pipe in um, Swan Lake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which works for me. I love Uh it. uh And I think there's a scene at the opera, too, which or the ballet, um, which, you know, diegetically. But Uh it's it's like it is as silent as a tomb, except for the crackling of the old soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And. And there's something about the way he moves that's so, it is uncanny in its like unlifelikeness, you know? <laughs> right, right. I, I love and it. And it makes it a kind of odd, it, 
an even more of a showcase for Lugosi, who's kind is pretty much the whole show. Yeah, you know, so the whole it's like the whole movie is a waxworks holding still for him, yes. to move, him and the brides who are wonderful um, to move around in, and it, it, sometimes it seems deliberately static, as if trying to evoke the the famous you know the famous theater version of it, which was a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's also 1931, and a lot of cinema was awfully static in the early sound era. But right. this one, it almost seems because I watched it again just to see, and I thought the same thing. It's like, wow, this is working better than I had remembered last I saw it, which is that showcase quality, like that wonderful scene where, you know, Parker is on the floor and the brides are over him and, and yes. Dracula comes in and waves them off and yes. claims him himself. Yes. And it's all just done in this kind of extreme pantomime and stillness that is, to me, the, like quite a riveting Delsart um, um, kind of representation on film that's working better than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. I think because there's a kind of monster quality to the tempo, the weirdness of the tempo and the stillness and the and the expressions of power like that. Yes, um, it starts to have its you know, and, the, and we'll we'll get on to like you know the 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 time element with um with the vampire, which is hugely important in some films, not as overtly important in others. But messing with the way time works seems like a, even a thing even in this film, though I don't think it often gets talked about in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, you're so right. And even um, I really liked the way you put it about the sort of like uh, expressions of power. Mm-hmm. The film holds his eyes mm-hmm. in these, like it's very dark, except for like these very two insistent lights right on his on eyes. On his eyes, it's very yeah. literal minded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's gorgeous in its mm-hmm. way. And yeah, and very uncanny. So, um, yeah, should we talk about the importance of Dracula? It's to yeah, the let's genre. get into it. I mean, you know, the, you know, the landmark in the Western world, the landmark work, of course, is 1897. It's Bram Stoke's Dracula. And it's not that long after when Lugosi's on stage. I forget the 20s, is it? It's got to be 20s. Yeah. He's doing his famous stage version. Um, you know, and of course, I should also note, forgot to. That um, Nosferatu is a is a, a not authorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yep. Um, there was a constantly threatened lawsuit by Bram Stoker's widow about ripping off the book, which it manifestly is. And so that's why he's called Count Orlock instead of Count Dracula. So there's some very superficial things that are done to change it. So to try to save up the lawsuit. Um, right. So that you know, it's, it's this foundational text that, and of course, once it's made, it becomes twinned with um, um, the, that first Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, and mm-hmm. all of Universal horror that people remember anyway is built on that foundation of these two films. Um, right. After that, you get all these other Mummy and you know Wolfman, and Universal is still branded as the horror film. They are always remaking them. They actually had an illustrious silent film um, era as well, but people just don't remember it as well. So yeah. you know, so. So that film is such a big, I mean, so that book is such a big deal in in giving the film, you know, the films that are going to follow its its major, you know, structure and set of plot points and characters and everything else. Um, but yeah, we should really get into just talking about, well, what's the nature of the vampire? Why did this, this way that Stoker especially represented the vampire? Yeah. You know, he's just, and he's drawing from folkloric origins. Some people say he's drawing from, from actual historical figures like you know, this is well known. Vlad the Impaler, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Bathory, who was, I believe, a countess, mm-hmm. who was, you know, capturing and killing peasant girls and drinking their blood and bathing in their blood, thinking it would preserve her youth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's disputed, I gather. Um, yeah, among it is. scholars, very much disputed. 
But regardless, he's certainly relying on folklore tales that he's pulling together and whatever, you know, whatever else he wants to bring in. But he, he winds up coming up with this figure that, as you put it in your syllabus, is a kind of a catch-all monster. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean by catch-all? What are we catching here? Well, okay, I'm going to rely lean on the ideas of uh, Jack Halberstam, who wrote a book called... Uh... Uh, skin shows, um, uh, which is about gothic horror and what she calls technologies of monstrosity. Mm-hmm. So, in the case of Dracula, she writes. She's a, li- a literary scholar. I'm sorry. He, um, they're trans. Um, I think mm-hmm. any pronouns, but go by Jack Halberstam now. They used to write under the name Judith. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, Halberstam writes that. Uh, uh, he leans on Michel Foucault uh, mm-hmm. for the idea that. Uh, the way that Dracula becomes a metaphor machine for all mm. kinds of otherness relates to um, a change, uh, relates to like the burgeoning middle class in the 19th century. Because mm. as you mentioned, Vlad the Impaler, Elizabeth Bathory, these were all nightmarish aristocrats. Mm. And um, fears of the vampire were are kind of traceable to like folkloric beliefs uh, um, very possibly related to the life-sucking uh, yeah. um, circumstances of life as a serf in, you know, feudal Europe. Um, so Foucault, in particular, argues that um, the the emphasis on bad blood, um, you know, obviously aristocratic lines are traced mm-hmm. to blood, um, and the idea of, like, corrupt blood become, uh, corrupt aristocracy kind of changes a bit um, in the 19th century, as the aristocracy kind of crumbles, um, it must be overthrown. And all mm-hmm. these other ideas um, develop about deviance and corrupt blood. And then you get sort of modern anti-Semitism. Obviously, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism had been around much longer than the 19th century, but mm-hmm. you get the obsession with like um, de- inborn degenerate weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, that's the way, you know, this inborn weakness is comes to be the way people uh, justify fear of the Jews and uh, homosexual is coming mm-hmm. into being as a category during this time. And that's mm-hmm. also dependent on these ideas of like inborn weakness or deviance. Um, so Halberstam argues that the Gothic novel, especially something like Dracula, mm-hmm. transforms the threat of the aristocrat into the threat of the de- degenerate foreigner, like the Jew, mm-hmm. um, transforms the threat of money, you know, rapacious, uh, aristocratic practices into the threat of um bad blood mm-hmm. um uh, you know the bad blood of race the bad blood of sexual perversion mm-hmm. um so it becomes and you can kind of dracula is he can represent all of these things um he's certainly an aristocrat so he keeps he's part of that line but um he's halberstam makes a very persuasive argument uh mm-hmm. for the way that he's coded as a jew he hoards gold mm-hmm. which is an old you know anti-semitic trope mm-hmm. um i think he even wears a star that's described as kind of like a star of david mm-hmm. um for him it's a aristocratic medallion mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of queerness, um, mm-hmm. in his relationship to Jonathan Harker and the Very way much. he, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten the bit about waving the brides away to claim right? Harker because so often 
you do get a kind of timid, we got to keep this hetero. <laughs> so the male vampire will fixate on the female exclusively and sometimes it'll go by. And, you know, and if it's the, if it's the brides, they'll go after a male figure. But I had forgotten. I don't know how I could have forgotten. It's such a great scene <laughs> that when he claims Harker for himself and you get this pot, you know, this heavy fade to black and it's just like, wowzers, they really went for it. <laughs> yes. And Harker, I believe in the book, like lengthily describes the sort of pull of the Count of Count Dracula, which is kind of like, you know, recounting, although not on a surface level, you know, like an, a, an uncanny attraction to this right. guy. Well, and keep in mind, too, in the novel, you there are scenes that are just must have just been shockaroos. I mean, there's still the scene. Oh, it still is. Where the scene where I think he might be. He might be paralyzed. I think he's paralyzed, but he can still he's still conscious and he's watching Dracula in the bed with his wife and himself, Mm -hmm. forcing her to suck from a cut he makes in his chest. And it's like, whoa, I mean, it still has the power to kind of stun you as like, wow, this is this is pretty damn decadent. But representing a kind of decadent sexuality associated Mm -hmm. with the aristocracy, associated with the other of all kinds is very, very typical of, of this figure of the, of the vampire. Absolutely. And conveniently for his status as metaphor machine, mm-hmm. he has no home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like have metaphorical qualities will travel. Mm-hmm. Um, like, or even yeah. if he supposedly has a home, he immediately leaves it. Like, you know, he's, he might have the castle in Transylvania, right? Yes. Well, exactly. I'm sorry. I should put it differently. Like yeah, he, but he's going to leave he, very swiftly and show up in England. Or yeah. Whatever. In a way, he, you know, he like like the wandering Jew, he brings his home with him. He has to bring his native earth. Um, so there's some, yeah, there's definitely something rooted, but unrooted. You know, he can mm-hmm. go. He goes anywhere. Yeah. And Nosferatu, hilarious scenes of him carrying his coffin full of dirt through the desert. Yes. Street, just in a prancing step running through town with his coffin. Yeah, exactly. Totally, totally. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, you could think of Dracula as foreignness itself uh-huh. um, in any way. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's really interesting because definitely Dracula is the the image in which all other vampire films are in conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be just like repeating Dracula's tropes or challenging them. Or challenging and rejecting or whatever. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. This is going to be the anti-Dracula vampire film kind of thing. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of that. But a, good, but a good early example of the boldness of, you know, a kind of like, you know, vampiric permission to take on forbidden subject matter is Dracula's Daughter, which is a 1936 film. Love. And it really has some just beautiful, beautiful scenes and just a great central performance by Gloria Holden. Yeah. Very troubled, but but fascinating. Arist- and they're always fascinating. You know? yes. Aristocratic woman who in the in the signature scene picks up claiming she's she's an artist and she picks up a young, you know, girl who's clearly poor um, and brings her to her home to supposedly, you know, make a make a painting, make a drawing of her. And it mm-hmm. leads to a. Um, a lesbian seduction scene that you know is really beautifully beautifully done yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's she's really interesting because all right if we think of dracula dracula is like unambiguously a villain mm. and uh you know he is foreignness itself and with mm. dracula's daughter you get uh the beginning of this like somewhat sympathetic Absolutely. vampire yeah, yeah. 
and she's it, she's definitely foreign. She's it's the best. There's the best scene where she is talking to. She's mm-hmm. got this creepy like manservant um, mm-hmm. who's also some kind of monster. I don't know exactly what his deal is. Um, but, <laughs> um, he might be. We talked about it in the class. Actually, we didn't come to any conclusions about this. But you know how Dracula has Renfield, the yes. man who he drives mad and exactly. kind of promises to turn into a vampire, but right. never does. Right. So he's eating bugs and for the blood. <laughs> And hoping for better things always yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and um uh, uh the countess and dracula's daughter has an analogous figure in this kind of like manservant mm-hmm. um like she doesn't turn him he, and he's kind of like in her thrall and forced to do her will forever um so anyway what's what's great about him is that he she is she was she wants to be normal mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's going to a psychiatrist <laughs> because mm-hmm. she feels like the pull of she wants to you know not be monstrous and this little like manservant guy is always telling her like you know give in um it she and she's an artist which is wonderful right. too she's like this tortured female artist you know and she's trying to she plays her music um because she wants release and he's like that music doesn't speak of release uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like give in to your perverse nature um it's so great and it's you know it could very easily be someone wrestling with coming out as mm-hmm. queer in the 1930s you know mm-hmm. um so she's this wonderful beautiful tortured figure and her yeah the the deal with her i guess is that dracula her father still exerts this like dark power over her but mm-hmm. she is um she is both ashamed of that um but it, there are times when she's talking to the psychiatrist who functions as like the van helsing figure the vampire mm-hmm. slayer right. um she where she really one ups him um and it's so thrilling like he's so mundane this little psychiatrist right <laughs> yeah and he doesn't believe in vampires at first mm-hmm. and still until he starts treating her and he starts you know asking her about things and she's got this great line she's at like a dinner party with the psychiatrist and she mm-hmm. says maybe there are more things in heaven and earth mm-hmm. doctor than i dreamed of in your psychiatry <laughs> And I love that she's going to a psychiatrist. It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> so good. But yeah, and what's wonderful is there's no question that you're completely caught up in her drama. She's the figure that that that, that you have to that's she's the main figure for you to go with throughout. And yeah. to have her be this tortured, I don't know, anti-heroine for for want of a better word, is is such an early and exciting um move to make. Considering this is, you know, as you're going to point out, you know, in in later decades, 80s, 90s, we get into a kind of sympathy for the vampire thing in a, in a much bigger, a much bigger way. Yeah, exactly. But and, in, oh, go ahead. Well, she's lovely. Um, she's just really notable. There's been like a lot of lesbian theory written about mm. this film because mm. it, obviously it's definitely like allegorical as to not only, uh, you know, like a sort of wrestling with one's desire which relates to a queer experience but to the apparitional quality of Mm -hmm. especially lesbianism on screen Mm -hmm. um there's something like always unspoken about desire between women that the vampire um uh encapsulates perfectly because people for one thing are afraid to say the word vampire it's Uh like they everyone in this film especially dracula's daughter thinks that maybe they know what she is Mm -hmm. uh meaning a vampire (laughs) or a lesbian and they can't (laughs) they can't can't ever say it you know so it's it's absolutely perfect in that way (laughs) 
That's so great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really is a stuff. That, that one's highly recommended. Um, uh, should, is it too soon to, to pivot to like the, you know, fighting the vampire mythology and the myth with Martin? Or is there another one we want to talk about before we get to that? Let's, uh, okay, should I do, uh, maybe we should, can I talk about the hunger before Martin? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, oh, wait, no, maybe I'm doing this out of order. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I mean, year-wise it's out of order, but it might, theme-wise it might be right. Okay. Well. It's up to you. No, let's go with Martin. Let's switch it up. Okay. Okay. Well, well. Thanks, just, Eileen. Just sorry, Chronologically, <laughs> We're going to get to the hunger. No worries. But, um, yeah. chronologically, of course, it's, uh, what is it? 76. Yeah. Is George A. Romero's weirdly undersung um, vampire film um, called Martin. It's it's now recognized as a masterpiece. At the time, it got a very limited release. It was made, of course, at a very low budget level. Um, uh, you know, it's he's doing his much more famous um, zombie films that completely reconfigure the figure, the, the the character of the zombie, the zombie subgenre altogether. Mm-hmm. But he does something just as just equally daring with the vampire film. Which is, you know, and keep in mind, you know, vampires had continued as a popular genre, though often falling into, you know, hard times of like, you know, kind of tatty sequels and Abbott Costello things and, you know, all the monsters from Universal in one movie and, you know, it would grind down to some bad things. But, you know, hardy, very hardy monster, obviously we still have him with us, but um, Romero does a real like, I'm going to explicitly you know do a resistant version it literally features a teenager very awkward teenager um who claims to be an 84 year old vampire um (laughs) but his only way of getting the blood he says he has to have to live is he's gotta he's because he's not particularly strong he's a kind of spindly little teen he has to sedate his victim and use razor blades to open their veins and then suck blood so you know you get these very Mm -hmm. um uncomfortable difficult struggles even with you know slight you know slightly built women because he's not strong so it's very anti-romantic anti-glamorous in any way and he keeps telling everyone to whom who who either suspects him of being a vampire his uh, his um very much older kind of grandfatherly figure he's technically a cousin from the old country eastern europe he's constantly saying nosferatu and accusing him of being a vampire um you know but he's constantly also trying to argue none of the magical stuff you get from movies and stuff or folklore or whatever is true. It's none of it. So when his grandfather's holding up the cross at him, he'll grab the cross and put it against his forehead and say, it, see, it, it doesn't work. None of this stuff works. But he, he also has in black and white these visions or projections or dreams. It's a little unclear what they are of himself playing out a series of you know, old movie versions of the romantic vampire, which he's mm-hmm. running around in a blousey shirt, pursued by torch-bearing mobs, you know, pursuing beautiful young women, um, etc. So it's that's that's just worked throughout as part of his psychology, even while he's he's telling anyone, including like a, a shock jock, a disc jockey person who does, you know, interviews with oddballs um who are up at night, you know, he'll he is confessing all this stuff to him and telling him, but yeah, not if only all that stuff were, if only all the stuff you see in Dracula movies was the truth. It's none of it's the truth. Right. Um, so, and it's very, it's a very seedy world of high crime, you know, poor neighborhoods, very rough looking, um, shot on a, in a very independent kind of handmade style. Um, so it's that, that kind of explicit rejection 
that winds up ironically in the end with the grandfather basically driving a, a stake through his heart to kill him, you know, with the grandfather and then putting a, you know, a silver cross on top of his grave to try to reassert the old world, <laughs> the old world narrative is a kind of, um, a, a kind of terrible, you know, and, and pathetic irony at the end. At least that's one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. It's great. And isn't, I mean, you can watch the whole thing as though he's just an insane drug addict, yeah. right? And yeah, not yeah. literally a vampire. And a sad teen who's completely isolated in the world. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's, oh my God, uh, Martin Rules. <laughs> it's so good. And that it, yeah. that it isn't better known. So another high, high recommendation. You really should see Martin. Totally. Um, and how, how can people see it, Eileen? I remember I could only find it on YouTube. That's Did you where see? I'm still seeing it. It's just, on okay. I don't know why. I, I think it's because its release was so weird. It had such a weird limited release and I somehow it's tang still tangled up in the in the problems with its initial release. It never, I, that's, that just started off the whole problem with it not, it not being widely seen. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. But but it's it, it, that's the, one of the clearer films to just say because you know even in the it was the seventies when like Frank Langella coming off a stage hit, you know, just re you know reaffirmed the ultra sexy sexy to the point of absurdity um, vampire <laughs> that again right. kind of resurrected the idea of oh my god if only I had a vampire come and bite me it was all I dream of. Right, right. Kind of vampire. <laughs> um, which leads us, I think, yes. um, to The Hunger, <laughs> which is very much a swoony. Woo! Uh, <laughs> the wow. Uh, if only I could be a vampire with those cool vampires. Because, you know, it's starring such glamorous people. The, the, the vampires are played by David Bowie and Su and uh, Catherine Deneuve at, you know, their most beautiful and, you know, exotically thrilling Yes. Um, and of course, they're going to draw into their midst Susan Sarandon, who also is looking absolutely vivacious and wonderful. Yes, as always. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, carry on with the. Oh hunger. man, I love this film so much. Um, well, let me just say, I think this is in conversation. The hunger is definitely the vampires got. I mean, besides like all kinds of otherness, there is like a real lesbian mm. estate tradition in the vampire film. Mm. So, um, shout out to Daughters of Darkness uh, from the seventies, which is a film that is uh, definitely like influenced the hunger as well uh, with Delphine Serig as a um an amazingly uh seductive female vampire um who's straight up evil there's no like ambiguity about her mm -hmm. but she's always dressed in like full sequin she always looks like a shiny art object mm -hmm. um which i love mm -hmm. and if you saw american horror story red tide which is like a kind of like limited um not a, a like a half as long as usual American Horror Story series. Mm -hmm. So much of the imagery from Red Tide was pretty much stolen <laughs> from oh. Daughters of Darkness because that's how <laughs> Brian Murphy rolls. Mm -hmm. Um but it's this lovely, like, it's definitely this Euro trash film. I think it's from Belgium. Um, and it's got a super glossy service, er, surface. And it is so camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it is so highly, insanely decadent. Um, <laughs> Delphine Serig and her, uh, like, one of the, she's got two women she seduces. And one is attached to a man. And they murder him amidst this decadent banquet. Um, it's fabulous. And they like put a, like a cake topper, you know, or no, it's a cut glass punch bowl um, oh, over his head. Like it's insane. Um, so shout out to that. Um, the hunger definitely continues this tradition of having a very glossy, beautiful female vampire at its core. 
Miriam, played by Catherine Deneuve, is slightly more sympathetic. There's a little bit of melodrama in the love story of this film that I love. Mm -hmm. um, but I like that they she's still evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we'll trace this shift where vampires are becoming, like, not the bad guys. And I'm bored as shit with that, personally. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, so in The Hunger, yeah, um, Deneuve's character is the oldest vampire. Mm -hmm. And she seduces various lovers of all the genders. And um, her promise, the you know, you always the vampire always proposes a contract mm -hmm. and um, usually the victim willingly submits. Mm -hmm. um, for one thing, you have to invite the vampire in. They're very polite. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the beginning of your contract, you know? Um, and Miriam always promises her lovers forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And since we're all steeped in the Dracula myth, we presume that that's literal. You know, mm -hmm. if you become a vampire, the deal is that you get turned and you get to live forever. But Miriam's promise is always broken after a couple hundred years for some reason that we never really find out. Her lovers start to disintegrate and decay. Mm -hmm. So she remains youthful and beautiful and vibrant um, since it looks like ancient Egypt, the film tells us. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. wearing her ankh or however you say it, her necklace. Yeah, it's sure. a very problematic sequence of <laughs> Denova in like almost blackface. I yes. don't know what the fuck is going Awkward on. Um, hell, yeah. <laughs> so very, so very embarrassing. Um, yeah. uh -huh. So her lovers start to decay after a while, but the shitty part is they don't die. Mm -hmm. So they're like moldering corpses that she keeps in her attic. <laughs> Yeah. But she seems to still love them in yeah. some way. She's she, yes. as they decay, she introduces David Bowie, like, ah, here is Marta, and you know, Peter. <laughs> and like, yeah, here is John. Keep him company. <laughs> yes. Yes, many tears shed and anguish looks out windows and things. Totally. Or, yes, yeah, David Bowie is, you know, justifiably resentfully falling apart before like aging at an insanely accelerated rate. And this gets um tied into the the, the way they encounter uh, uh, Susan Sarandon's character, who's what's her name again? Um, I'm um, Doctor Sarah. Sarah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. she's a doctor studying um, accelerated aging in children, etc. Yeah. You know, aging effects. They're doing experiments that are very cruel and horrible on monkeys. Um, so anyway, that's how they wind up encountering uh, David Bowie. Has an aborted attempt to try to see her to see if there's any way to arrest this um, process. Yes. Yeah. And Miriam sees her earlier on TV right. talking about her uh, expertise, which is obviously of interest to Miriam mm -hmm. um, because she can, you know, maybe hopefully present, prevent her lovers from falling apart. Mm -hmm. But it soon, you know, you soon find out that really this uh, research isn't going anywhere. They don't really have a cure for this. Mm -hmm. um, but Miriam becomes interested in uh, Susan Sarandon's character romantically. Mm -hmm. So um, this is where Miriam is still bad. Uh, she, yeah. she promises things to her lovers that she cannot deliver um but there i mean there is this lovely like she's got these beautiful scenes where she's mourning the david bowie mm -hmm. character for instance and it's a hallucination of susan sarandon's a dream maybe or maybe it's real you don't really know mm -hmm. but you know Catherine deneuve is draped in black lace playing the piano she's always playing the piano mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> with like a single tear rolling down her exactly. cheek you know um, very funny well i mean it's, there's a there's a while david bowie you know, they already have a young, very young woman who, a girl who only is what twelve or something, thirteen. Yes, who's brought in. So she's and she's being groomed as the potential successor once David Bowie dies. Yes, and she's. It seems important that she's a musician. 
Because yeah, they're of all, course. Like, you have to have a third for the trio <laughs> to, play, to play these, you know, 18th century songs. Schubert. It's always Schubert, Schubert. It's always Schubert out. It is. <laughs> okay. So, yes, they're group. She's a, I forget, is she a violinist? I forget what the kid is. She is. Something. Yeah, she's she the violinist. Um, so, yeah, they're all, they're all, they're constantly play, working on their classical music. <laughs> okay. And there are many free hours. I've, I've got to say this to an audience of zero people who care, but mm. I have this theory. It's all, in these films, there's like a mas- very masochistic aesthetic to this mm. film. And there are other films like that have this aesthetic, like The Piano Teacher with mm. Isabelle Huppert, which mm. I will never see again, Michael Haneke. <laughs> um, and God, there's some other film like The Duchess of Something. It's some other thing that came out in the last couple of years, which mm. is also masochistic about a you know glamorous woman. And that one's lesbian, I think, uh, mm. who like whips some young girl, you know. It is always Schubert's Piano Trio in B-flat major. (laughs) (laughs) In all of these films, it's this exact piece. And I don't know, like, did it start with the hunger and everyone's, you know, it's just part of the collective unconscious now. But (laughs) if you've got a masochistic aesthetic, you're going to damn well hear Schubert's Piano Trio in B-flat major. So, yeah, anyway, they they, this. And this is, I mean, it's absurdly delicious. You know, Mm -hmm. they're the they're the epitome of the, you know, queer coded high culture too much culture it's made mm. them perverse right <laughs> you know? and, and the, the opening is admittedly wonderful it's it, you know you can't hear the dialogue because they're in a in, they're in a club and the music is just pounding 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 and you know david bowie and Catherine Deneuve are just the two coolest most amazing looking people in the room and they're there on the hunt they're there to pick out um exactly. the two people who are going to think they're very lucky and turn out in the end to be not very lucky <laughs> yeah yeah um in the sex scene that turns into the yeah, <laughs> the death scene. So, yes. it, but it's an extraordinary, extraordinarily well done sequence. In that, in that, that kind of that kind of high culture cool just comes right on down through the ages and still works in in this early nineteen eighties nightclub. And it would. You're just like, no, yes. that would work again. It yes. would always work. <laughs> It's true. They're, and their looks are wonderful. Like they dress, uh, except when they go out to the nightclub where they do look like they're in the early 1980s. Maybe their look is also always like late 30s, yeah. mid 40s, you mm-hmm. know, they, which on Deneuve with her like insane blondness looks mm-hmm. very Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she yeah. looks like Hitler's girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, um, <she> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It, it, she, I mean, it looks great. But it, of course, because of the historical associations always does have a tinge of evil, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this film because uh, the, as a Catherine Deneuve fan, she's in art films, right? So I frequently, there's frequently like a melodramatic catharsis in her movies, even though she's in like a lot of sad love stories. French, even like mainstream French films deny a kind of like purge you know uh, there's like something about the way that i don't know the traditions have progressed even Mm. though it was the country where like melodrama you know had a really big foothold in the 19th century Mm. um i i think the art film tradition has like leached the the mel like they're fucked up sad films in france but they never quite give you the opportunity to cry Mm. so it's such a relief as a deneuve fan to see her like she loses her lover sarah who decides not to become a vampire Mm -hmm. and she she's cut in this great scene where Sarah kisses mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Deneuve's character and then grabs her Ankh necklace, mm-hmm. stabs herself with it. 
<laughs> right? And then they're like covered in each other's blood. Um, and Deneuve is just like crying, covered in all of this red. And I'm like, thank God. This is like, I have been longing for this. <laughs> I just like want to see some kind of like cathartic, I don't care, blood, tears, whatever it is. Like, thank you, The Hunger. Um, it's so satisfying. Um, anyway, that's my problem. Um, but and in fact, I wish it had ended there. Um, the, Ooh, it, yeah. has, it has an ending that goes, even the cast apparently hated it. I was reading about it. That Susan Sarandon was just like, what the hell with that ending, right? I mean, does it make any sense that somehow I'm still alive and right. all the dead have risen to take their revenge on Catherine Deneuve when the whole point all along was Catherine Deneuve was unkillable and suddenly you can kill her if you just push her off the off one, two floors and push her down. And you're just like, so right. it is, it, 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 that ending would have been, way better just that plus some tiny denouement would have been perfect it's true yeah. what what is kind of interesting about it though and this mm. continues the legacy of daughters of darkness where yeah. this also happens it's a very nice example of the sort of like uh queer generation mm. uh that's not you know it's like create the creation of an alternative family mm. you make like versions of yourself right. but it's you know same same age same gender sometimes mm. um so it's like this vampiric lineage that's mm. not the same as a patriarchal line mm. um so that's kind of cool so the so, Zorandon character lives on. She's going to be the dominant vampire from now on. And it's uh, implied that she's created two younger lovers for herself, a young man and a young woman. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That's right. So Mm -hmm. maybe they can play Schubert's piano trio trio (laughs) and be playing. Yes, but we don't know if she can play. She's going to have to learn to play. It's not a big lesson. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) But, you know, an interesting thing also that I I think I forgot to mention to you, but but that seems to be happening is even in films in say yeah yeah 80s 90s that that strip away all of these you know romantic high culture trappings from the figure of the vampire that, that mm-hmm. was so big in hunger so i'm thinking of like near dark which was the only catherine bigelow movie i admire absolutely the only one mm. um and it makes them these kind of southwestern you know biker toughs you know who ride around in a in a trailer that's got tin foil covering the windows it's very <laughs> alternate family but they're completely like hard case. Um, they seem like they're low level criminals. And at one point, the, the greatest scene in the film is these guys invade um, a bar room. And it's Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and, you know, a couple of assorted people who are all very, very tough looking. And they invade a bar room. And at first, of course, and it's, and it's a roadhouse full of the toughest types of guys who are pretty soon just pissing themselves in terror as it's a vampire massacre, essentially, and they're going to go from one pool-playing, bar-sitting, you yes. know, hard-liquor-drinking guy to the next and just, you know, lighting into them and killing them and drinking them. And they don't care, male, female, it doesn't matter. So it does that thing. It, it strips it all away, all the classy stuff, all the romantic stuff. But of course, it's still saying, you're, it's still putting you with the vampire. The, the nominal lead is a very young man who becomes enthralled with the with a young woman vampire who's so beautiful. And that's how he gets enticed in and gradually brought into the vampire lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. So it's still irresistible, <laughs> you know, even yes. if it's, it's ultimately ugly and violent and it seems like you're, you know, they're not wealthy. They're just, you know, rampaging around the Southwest from crappy bars to, <laughs> uh, you know, crappy places to hook up your trailer, I guess. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it takes away all the high life and all the poshness but it still is pre- presenting it as, but you kind of want to be with them anyway. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's not fun if you don't want to. But then we've all like since the 80s and 90s, we begin to transition into a time where the vampires almost no longer dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're almost like, you know, they're a minoritarian group Mm -hmm. um, who are oppressed. (laughs) And two hunted, you know, they stand for all kinds of fears of the other that we've now been, you know, uh, we're supposed to know better about. Mm. Um, And that becomes boring. (laughs) Mm. Or at least, um, you know, you kind of wish the vampire still, I mean, there are are some instances where the vampire still has their bite, but... um, uh, Eileen, as you mentioned, Twilight mm. is a big Ugh. mark in this development of <laughs> vampires. Because, yeah, <laughs> way too sympathetic. The Cullens, you know, the, the Cullen family <sighs> retain the high culture marks of Miriam and John from The Hunger. They are definitely like classical music loving and uh, vegetarian. <laughs> They're vegetarians, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they sparkle. Um, well, they're all they attractive. Their skin sparkle, but they play baseball. I, I think that's Gross. unforgivable. That's the, that's the mark of their Mormon author, <laughs> for sure. Sure. Exactly, exactly. All the family fun. <laughs> and of course, it's really the beginning, or at least the, 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 such a high point is in terms of profits of, you know, the monster is your nice boyfriend. Yeah. Um, that it starts happening to all these other monsters. It's just the ruination. I just, and I remember saying when I was first watching Twilight with horror um, and thinking, oh my God, they can't do this to the zombie, can they? And sure enough, they got to the zombie too. And I was just like, this, thank God, it's, it's sort of tapered off. I don't think you don't see it like you did for a while right it was right horrifying um so yeah that <laughs> just needs to not be <laughs> maybe what happens a little bit is like it shifts to the person who recognizes the vampire like mm-hmm. the the mortal person mm-hmm. is the outsider now yeah. you know like in in twilight that's certainly the case of Kristen stewart's character oh. mm-hmm. um i was talking to a student the other day who is writing a paper on Kristen stewart for a class mm-hmm. and um she does she didn't like twilight mm-hmm. she likes Kristen stewart she's like interested in her like queer image mm-hmm. she wants to ignore twilight in her like Kristen stewart analysis i'm like you can't do that yeah uh, you know like <laughs> even though twilight sucks on a lot of levels like Kristen Stewart's character in it is still really queer. I was like, arguably Twilight is queerer than that lesbian Christmas movie she did. Um, (laughs) Like, I don't think I've seen anything straighter than that lesbian Christmas movie. Um, You know, the boyfriend sparkles in Twilight and she's misunderstood and a big weirdo. So, (laughs) and that, you know, that's something that continues in Let the Right One In, mm-hmm. um, where there's an outsider kid that's a 2008 movie mm-hmm. from Sweden, which is fantastic. It is very good. I, re- I re-looked at, at scenes from it. Yeah, I'd forgotten for some reason. I don't know how I could have. It's so good. It's so good. And this, yeah, this little kid is, you know, beat up at school and it's like implied he's going to become, you know, like the school shooter. When you first meet him, he's fantasizing about murdering his fellow classmates who are atrocious to him. Yeah, there's and a he, scene where he's trying to stab a tree, like repeatedly yep. he's practicing. And that's when he first, I think he first sees the, the vampire girl. She's standing behind him, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And then she becomes part of his like revenge fantasy and they Mm -hmm. take on the world together and you cheer for them in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's a useful thing in that the world, it's, it's a great, this variation is a great way to do the world is so horrible. Yes. It's better to be a, it's better to be a vampire. At least you can fight back because otherwise you're just, you're prey. But of monsters that aren't even interesting monsters, they're just regular humans. <laughs> so, yes. so now you're like, I'm a better predator than you. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so should we um should we give the the listeners our recommendations for some unheralded vampire films that I they think, should watch? Absolutely. I mean, we've already named a couple, you know, um, um Dracula's daughter, 
uh, Martin, let the right one in. Is there anything else we need to say about that one? I think that's that one's pretty straightforward, but it's just so beautifully, beautifully done. Oh my god. Um, yeah, maybe we should talk a little. I mean, it is set in like I think it's set in the eighties. Yes, um, it is. It is. I'm not. I wasn't sure why it needed to be, but it was. Yes, and it's set in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, outside, you know, it, like a not sexy, uh, like working class suburb. Right. And I think, like along the same lines as of as Martin, Martin, there's something about let the right one in where the world, the promise of like you know mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you call it? Like prosperity Mm -hmm. uh, for the average person has like disintegrated. Right. And that allows for like monstrosity to, you know, um, honestly become an appealing alternative Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the the, like cruel, bitter, joyless lives that people are leading. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And actually that, that leads nicely into another recommendation we have, which is let the, uh, a girl walk, walks home alone at night, which of course got a ton of press and deserved it. Mm-hmm. The Iranian film directed by Anna, I'm hoping I'm saying your name right, Anna um, Lily Amarpour um, from 2014, in which, again, it's just such a great film for showing in the starkest possible way this kind of urban uh, desolation. Just like the world is just a bad world. And, mm-hmm. and the young woman female, the young woman vampire who stalks the streets, you know, for the next victim You know, he's just, again, a better predator than, say, the nightmarish drug dealer pimp that she allows to pick her up, thinking, of course, he's going to take advantage of her and, you know, she's going to kill him and drink his blood. So she's a kind of, you know, Avenger figure on these, you know, very mean streets um, in which it's just such an ugly world (laughs) That, that, again, a little bit like the Let the Right One In, where these two children at least find each other and have a friendship. And then become and are both you know gonna work their way through the world as better predators. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lo- also a love story where she meets a young man who's always being of course preyed upon, having everything taken from him, um, mm-hmm. trying to help his father who's a drug addict, and it's impossible. And and it, it's it's the forming of a couple. She decides not to kill him. She very much kills in terms of whether you're being a a bad human predator. There's a wonderful scene where she grabs a hold of a boy who's out at night skateboarding. She's going to wind up taking his skateboard. It's wonderful. And she says to him, she has this wonderful speech that begins and ends, be a good boy. And then she basically (laughs) threatens him, I'm going to, I can take out your eyeballs and feed them to wild dogs. So be a good boy. And it's so, and she's like, and I'll be watching always. (laughs) <laughs> I'll always be on these streets watching. <laughs> and it's just one of the most beautiful scenes I have ever seen in my life. Really, really a magical scene. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Highly recommend. It's in black and white, but yes. it's got a very like um a very cool like uh, you know, pop aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um so. she's also a modern girl and they find a wonderful way of showing this. She has a wonderful <laughs> it's it's a little bit like that French shirt was that was very mod in the like fifties, which which has horizontal black stripes on white. Yeah. And so she's wearing that under this the wonderful the what do you say? What do you call it again? I'm gonna get the wrong not the oh, a job. A job. Yeah. Um yeah, the full length black cloak, but underneath it she's got this wonder wonderful modern looking striped shirt. And then when she she shucks off, you know, the the, the uh, so you can see her that she's very modern underneath. And that's generally, you only see her that way when she's with the young man that she's coming to like very much. Um, And then they'll play, you know, modern music, pop music together, et cetera. And, you know, so you have this kind of duality going on all the time that's that's shown in what she's wearing. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a lovely love scene when they get together. Mm. She it's she and this boy, they encounter each other a couple times, but mm. um, he's dressed up like a vampire for mm. Halloween. Right. And, right. <laughs> and they like meet again under a streetlight. I'm telling you, lamps and vampire films, there's something to it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she uh, they have this like lovely meeting and he's kind of this um, he's he's really sweet and she takes him back to her lair um, and they had they have like a lovely little romance and then there's this like a crazy lyrical scene where this drag queen um, is outside doing a dance with a balloon oh, <laughs> yeah and it that. yeah it's a kind of lovely I don't know what it exactly what it was trying to say but they this is like one of the few examples of like a really nice interspecies romance um, <laughs> and there's something about the drag queen dancing with her black balloon that's just like um i don't know here's one way to find a little bit of like uh, something not her horrible in, right. a, in a totally um a dismal world, world. and <laughs> so, in, you yeah. know in the end similar to let the right one and they're, they're both they're leaving they're leaving the place they were in that in this case it's even more fitting because they're driving away right in, in his yeah. car that he manages to get back from the horrible um drug dealer who was uh, yeah who got it from him um so there's this move that they're gonna they're going to stay together he decides to stay with her even though he realizes you know <laughs> Yeah, she's a vampire, and yeah. so but but it's a that bid toward freedom that you also see at the end of the light, let the right one in when the, where the the children have contrived to leave together and he's bringing her secretly with him in a way that I will describe. Watch the movie for yourself. Yeah. So yeah, both have that. Let's start. <laughs> let's start a kind of human occult creature new way of being in an in an otherwise awful world. Totally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they're in this kind of no man's land and mm -hmm. there's this kind of like, you know, borderless, uh, apocalyptic feel. So why mm. not merge why not? species? Why yeah, not? exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the only other niche film that, you know, we had talked about is Ganja and Hess. It's from 1973, directed by Bill Gunn. And I'm sorry to say, I've watched a few clips and I just didn't get time to watch it. I've meant to, you've told me about it ages ago and I've meant to watch it ever since. It looks great. It's freaking beautiful. If you, uh, so you can see it on Hulu, I believe, um, or at least I could a couple months ago. Uh, 1973, directed by Bill Gunn. It's very arty, and the narrative is like elliptical. <laughs> so if uh, you really have to, I really recommend. Um, there is an article written by Manthea Diawara um, and another person. I'm so sorry, but read that. It's really helpful to explain like what the hell's happening with the narrative. But basically it's about um, a powerful uh, black preacher who uh, becomes a vampire through um, an, some African magic, which is really interesting. And um, I, I, it's it's like super philosophical. Mm -hmm. He encounters a uh, young black writer um, played by the director himself who kills himself um, in, in a way that, uh, oh man, I don't even know if I should tell you these things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers I, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a... It's a, ultimately a critique of like assimilationist blacks and capitalism, mm. but it's not simplistic. It's also a critique of the black church without being simplistic. Mm -hmm. The main vampire at the end kills himself by going to church mm -hmm. and he tries to expose himself to a big cross. He seeks an offing himself, but his consort, the more working class um, 
Ganja, um, this like fabulous woman who he meets up with, who uh, wants to abandon her mortal coil and mm-hmm. become a vampire. Mm-hmm. She survives and um, she she is not like burdened with this guilt. And mm-hmm. she remains one of the, one of our like fabulous looking, still pretty evil vampires. And she triumphs at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so worth seeing. It's one of the most beautifully filmed things I've seen in a long time. And, um, yeah, you can try to untangle it for yourself, but, uh, just go see it. Yeah. I see it. So it's, yeah, yeah. Hulu, but it, it's also, the whole thing is on YouTube. So, um, if, if, you know, last resort, if you can't find it anywhere else, I'm certainly oh, cool. going to see it. Santa yeah. didn't get to in time for this. Cool. Um, any others? I think that's all I thought of as far as recommendation. Of course, there's a million others, I'm sure, but, but we can't overburden yeah. you. So the, those few though are really so worth checking out. Yeah. Those, these are, these are the most tasty ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and that is it, I think, for our for our um, vampire episode that we are calling Tracking the Vampire. Thank you, dear listeners, and of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in our satin-lined coffins that we love. <laughs> if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film suck content instead of just half that's publicly available. You can find news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us in two weeks for more fantastical film talk on Film Suck. Until then, thanks again for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.